Welcome to the X-Cures podcast, Target Cancer, How the Health Tech Revolution is Helping Cancer Patients. I'd like to welcome Dr. Shamli Singhal. Shamli, nice to meet you. Welcome to the podcast. Nice to meet you as well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Um, can you tell us, first of all, I believe you're a surgical oncologist. What is a surgical oncologist and why do you need one? Sure. So a surgical oncologist, um, most surgeons at least trained for five years in general surgery. And I did an additional three years of training just to operate on cancer patients and just to understand what's the disease. So when you look at surgeons, sometimes they're divided by uh, areas of the body or disease processes. And so cancer surgeons are surgical oncologists. And what we do is for all the cancers that you have in your body, we understand a lot more about the disease process, about how to deal with primary disease, how to deal with recurrent disease, how to understand metastatic disease. And different than a lot of um, a lot of specialties is that we have very close relationships with the medical oncologist, the radiation oncologist, the plastic surgeon. And so putting all of that team together actually makes for a better outcome for the patients for that specific disease. Uh, so I also noticed from your background that in addition to being a surgical ontologist, you also have a PhD in molecular pharmacology. Um, that's a, a lot of training. Yeah, it was a lot of training. I went to medical school with the idea that I would do drug discovery mm -hmm. and that I was interested in oncology and I was interested in how the genome works. It was just around the time that people were sequencing the genome. And so it was, so I went to medical school, I did the MD-PhD program and I worked with the the woman who discovered Taxol, Susan Horwitz. I did my PhD with her. And then when I went back to medical school, I really liked the urgency and the efficacy of surgery. And I really thought that putting those two things together really would, would be of benefit to patients. So I, I know you work at the El Camino Hospital. Can you tell us a little about the El Camino Hospital and their philosophy for taking care of patients? Kind of what's what's special about El Camino? What's special about El Camino is it's a community hospital. We you know, most of most cancer patients are taken care of in the community. And when you have a life-threatening illness, you want to be around your support. You want to be around uh, around everyone that loves you, who who you love. And you don't want to have to travel and sit in a hotel for for several months while while treatment happens. So what we our premise of our of our cancer center is that the services come to the patient, not the patient to the services. So all the world class everything comes to you and it's organized in a way that's that's thought that's thoughtful that's compassionate that's empathetic to the journey of the patient now it sounds a little uh overused that this this that the patient is at the center of your care but remember this is a community hospital we take we take care of people from birth to death Right. We want to be there for your for your great moments like the birth of your babies. We also want to be there for your challenges. And what we've collected is a group of specialists, a group of ancillary uh, providers, you know, all the, the accoutrements of a, of a big cancer center in your community. So you don't have to travel. You don't have to do anything. And we will find everything for you. That's fantastic. You know, one of the things I've been noticing is there's just an incredible amount of technology coming to bear across medicine in general, but particularly in cancer. Can you talk a little bit about the types of tools and technologies, maybe new things that are coming um, in the cancer world that are both helping cancer patients live longer, have better quality of life, and kind of how are they integrated uh, in a community setting such as, as the one you're working in? 
Sure. So I'm the medical director of the cancer program and have been from its from its starting point. I um, when we were thinking about building the cancer center, we really thought about the people and the doctors and the the nurses that come there. And one of one of the things that's really important about how you get your care is the efficiency and the rapidity that the care is given. So we've made a promise to our patients from, from the beginning that we would see patients within 48 hours of a diagnosis. So you get your paperwork and everything together and one of us will find time to see you so that you can feel that the process gets started. And then once it starts, it's a very organized system. And you know, one of the facts that you may not realize is that the time of diagnosis to first treatment around the country is quite long. It can be anywhere from 40 days to 72 days for a diagnosis to first treatment. A long time. It is a long time. We have done everything in our power to shorten that time. So when you talk about technology, I talk about several things, one of which is our medical treatments. But one of the, the big things is the organization of those treatments right. and how you get them, you know, who who makes that first appointment for you? How do you how do you access all that care? So you don't have when you set foot in our place, you don't have to do anything else. We will take care of it for you. And for most patients and families, that's a big relief. You don't have to learn cancer. We've learned it. We know how to deliver it. So we're going to give it to you in a way that we think makes sense for you. And if you look at what's happened with the genomic revolution and how many more medications we have, how many more um, it's just a simple one, which is all over the TV is Keytruda, right? All those immunotherapy has been mixed and matched with all of our old chemotherapy. It's been mixed and matched with biologics and all of it has become super complicated because you come with one, you come with a disease. We treat you with the tools we have, chemotherapy, um, I'm gonna call it medications because it's a whole range of them. Medications, radiation, surgery, and because we're being more successful in each of those areas, it's much more complicated for every patient and for everybody. And that's, I think, the big lesson in this going forward idea is that there's not a one size fits all treatment for cancer. We can't just say, okay, well, it's medication or okay, it's surgery or okay, it's this. And then so I'm gonna talk a little bit more about each of those individually, but the, the other thing that has come about is early detection. So once you can do screening better, once you can do um, less invasive monitoring of patients that are at risk, you then have lower stage disease that you're dealing with. And those patients do very well. So they, they have a cancer diagnosis and then they go past it, right? It's, it's a, a part of their life, it's a, a, a a thing that happens for a few years, and then they're survivors, and then they go on to live live really healthy, happy lives. You bring up a really interesting question. Can just, just for patients out there, especially the newly diagnosed, can you talk a little bit about what sort of expectations should patients have for what they're going to experience? You, you know, you just find out you're diagnosed with cancer. How should they approach it kind of philosophically and from a set of expectations? And then also for patients then, as you pointed out, we have more and more patients moving on to survivorship. So what happens in survivorship? What, what does that look like now that you know, you've been through the initial treatment of your cancer and now you're, you're moving on into the, hopefully the rest of your life? Sure, so patients, when they, see, when they hear the C word, right? It's a, 
it's a crisis of this wasn't supposed to happen to me. This wasn't supposed to happen now. And, you know, for a lot of people, like myself included, right? A mammogram is a checkbox that you do every year, right? You do the checkbox and you're done with that and you move on to the dentist and great, we're, we're good. No one actually expects to find anything on those screening tests. So that's the first expectation that has to be modulated is you're going to screening because you're worried that you might have a risk for something. And if you find it, it's an early detection, right? It's it's what you went there for. It's not to get something late, but to get it early. And yes, it's bad news, but it's good news that you went for your screening, right? That, that's the first expectation. And the second is that cancer has a bad reputation. It has a very, uh, you know, when you hear the cancer word, you think, oh my God, I'm gonna die. I have to go figure out who's gonna speak at my funeral, who's gonna do this. And it's not true, right? You have just begun to scratch the surface of what people can do. And you have to, and the expectation that it's gonna be one treatment and done is no longer actually true. Because for early stage disease, that might well be true, but for later stage disease, you may get one treatment, you may get another treatment, you may get a modulation, and it it's just a process. And the process goes with you. And you can have a, a quality of life while undergoing cancer treatment. And that's what I think people don't, don't appreciate, right? They think that they're running this huge sprint to get to the end of the treatment, but really it's just sort of paced, right? There's parts of it which are intense and parts of it which are not. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. Many of the cancer patients, uh, certainly my company and our partners have worked with, are just, they're advanced cancer patients. They're undergoing a series of treatments. And one of the things we talk about is that every treatment, you know, gets you further down your journey. And it's another part of the road. And I assume you see that as patients who come back and go along their journey and try multiple different therapeutic options uh, along the way. Yeah. And for diseases that we never used to be able to treat, we there are new medications for that every day. And so the longer I can keep you alive doing the medications that, or the radiation or things like that, that will extend your life, the more chance there's going to be a medication that you respond to. So for new new medications, you bring up a really exciting topic. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about what's been going on in terms of the latest uh, therapeutics and maybe also kind of diagnostic? You talked about early detection mm -hmm. discovery, but there's also additional types of technology for actually trying to figure out that Rubik's Cube of what are the right, right things to do. Sure. So in the 50s, so if you go back to solid tumor treatments, right? In the 50s, there was adriamycin. That was the big drug that we had breakthrough items for, right? And in, before then, it was just surgery, right? Surgery couldn't could fix the local problem, but it can't fix the distant problem. Adriamycin changed that whole distribution. Then the next medication that came along was uh, 5-FU, which again, changed, added it, but it seemed like there was only one drug a decade. And then Taxol came out, and Taxol was the, the solid tumor go-to drug, right? And we had great success with that. I mean, really impressive success. Then we started looking at biologics, and how do you then add biologics to a chemotherapy regimen? And we targeted. The problem with the early kind of chemotherapy is it's like um, a grenade, right? It goes out, and it blows up everything in its path. You want things that are targeted. You want things that will have less collateral damage, whether it's chemotherapy or whether it's radiation or whether it's surgery. We don't want extra damage that, that can't be fixed. 
So now we're in an era where we have chemotherapy, biologics, and now immunotherapy. So we've found that we can actually improve your own immune system to, to deal with the cancer that you have. Again, all of these things come with collateral damage. And how do you manage the collateral damage is going to be the uh, the problem of the next 10 years is how do you manage all of the, the complexity. And then the other thing that I would say about it is, so let's say we have brilliant medicine mm-hmm. that puts somebody that has been has diseased lots of places and the disease shrinks in a few places. It's still present in a couple of places. Then you can use local therapy. Right. And then so the radiation has been used a little bit more, more targeted radiation, more directed at certain spots. Right. And then you go back and then you can do a little bit of surgery. You can do a little bit of radiation, you know, and it, it sort of inches its way forward. But um, I think it's because we were successful with the first go round that we we have this opportunity to do this personalized uh, dealing with where your cancer is and what we have to do with it. So I'm hearing kind of a couple of things. There's a lot more tools. The tools are more effective and we're getting better at actually applying the tools at the right time in the right order in order to actually help patients. But that's a very personalized or kind of, I always think precision medicine approach. Is mm-hmm. that? Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing about the oncologists and the radiation oncologists that I work with is that we are looking to do something. Mm-hmm. We are looking to figure out what we can do for you. We're not looking to say, listen, this isn't workable. Let's let's send you to hospice, right? We're not those people. And so if there is some way to thread that needle, we're working at it. So that's, you bring up a great thing. I hear a lot of people talk about patient preferences and mm-hmm. what their outcomes and goals are for treatment. Do you see different, um, like very different um, basic wishes or desires from the patients you see in terms of what they're, they hope to achieve with their cancer therapy? I think it's hard for patients. I don't think that when they get diagnosed, it's just a fear, right? What's going to happen to me now? And no one actually really sits down at that moment and says, and knows the patient well enough to say, listen, how do you want to do, how do you want to do this? Do you, because there are patients that are so fearful of surgery, fearful of biopsies, fearful of all these things, but yet chemotherapy is great for them. They really like, okay, well, I can take a medicine. Mm-hmm. And then there are other people that are so afraid of medicine that they prefer surgery and feel like surgery is a little more organic. And it, it's, you have to reach the patient where they are. And you have to, to really connect with those people and really have the time to just sit down with them for a moment and say, what's the goal here? And address the fear. So there's a lot of people that come in with early cancer and they said, listen, I understand you're fearful that this is going to kill you but we haven't even started to diagnosis. We haven't even started to fight this. So I will be more than happy to tell you when this isn't workable, but we're not there yet. And that really puts people a little bit at ease that they don't have to worry about that piece of it until somebody tells them. That's wonderful. I'm like you and the folks at El Camino uh, Hospital have just really kind of figured out this patient centricity. It's really wonderful to hear that. So, uh, in 2019, you started a company called Hope and Beauty. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So, you know, I, I like lots of physicians, listen to patient stories. And one of the stories that, that I heard um, 
from one of my breast cancer patients. And if you if you met her, you wouldn't really think of her as a fashionista. She was in her 60s and, you know, kind of a t-shirt and jeans sort of person. And she came in, she had a breast cancer 20 some odd years ago, and then came in for recurrence. And we took care of it with a mastectomy and she was, you know, she was fine. And from my point of view as a physician, I thought, oh, hey, that's cool. 25 years ago, we took care of her breast cancer. She's still alive. And, you know, had a recurrence, we dealt with it, and she's still alive. So that's cool. She's in her 70s now. But for her, it wasn't that way. She came in saying that she was remodeling her bathroom finally after all these years because she felt that surgery had maimed her. She felt that that event that happened 25 years ago changed the way that she lived. So she wouldn't wear certain kinds of T-shirts. She wouldn't go out of the house. She wouldn't. Uh, she just wouldn't interact with people. And that happened 25 years ago. And she remodeled her bathroom because she didn't want to see herself come out of the shower because she felt so de deformed. And what I thought was a great success, she thought was failure because no one really paid attention to the illness. So when you look at things like disease and treating disease, we treat disease, we get medicines, we got this, we got that. Illness is actually the impact of that disease on you. And we never really paid attention to that. Or we, me, the physician, didn't really, didn't really enter, didn't put that into the mix. Like we, we have 15, 20 minutes to see a patient. We don't really have, I mean, we're talking about scans, we're talking about surgery, we're talking about, you know, complications, whatever, right? And we pass that patient off to, to other people, nurse practitioner, nurses in the infusion center, all of these people. But we have never really coherently addressed what's the impact of disease. And I, and I talked to a lot of the patients after I met this lady and listened to their stories. So, you know, they change their clothing. They won't go swimming. They have, they feel pain in places that they never had pain. They can't walk. You know, the, the treatment has its impact. And then it has a psychological impact in that every time you have a cold, you think you're dying, right? And you just can't get back to what seems like normal, right? And so the company is really about, um, there's two parts to it. The first part is addressing what you consider sort of hidden disabilities. Things like your dry skin after chemotherapy. What do I do about that? The dry mouth that I have. What do I do about that? What do I do with my cracked nails that I no longer can have a manicure? And all of these things that I'm pointing at are little things, right? People don't want to bring it up to the physician because they said, oh, you know what? This is such a vain item because I'm, you know, I could be dying and I'm not, but they're, I'm they're part of your life, right? Right. But I mean, you have these people that spent all their time. I mean, they were well kept. They had their hair done. They had their nails done. Their skin was beautiful. They went and got facials. Now all of a sudden they have a disease that affects all of that. And then their self-esteem, their image. And then every last person tells you this most annoying thing of have a positive, a positive uh, outlook. Well, it's very hard if you, if you look in the mirror and you don't have any eyebrows, who's that person? So I decided to take this on in a data way. So I looked at the data that we have. I looked at who's been, you know, the dermatologist, all the chemotherapies, looking at side effects. 
I pulled together oncology estheticians. I pulled together experts in their field in massage and all that kind of ancillary stuff and stuff for which we have data and things that we have clinical trials, things that we know work and they're oncologist curated. I'm a surgical oncologist and I cure and we curated them for specific things that patients have. So these are, are, spe are specific products that you've identified that mm -hmm. are going to help patients with um, the other part of care outside of surgery and right. chemotherapy and immuno-oncology and the, the actual therapy that they're going through, but really supporting their overall quality of life and, and yeah. health in the community. Right. For example, there's a medication um, called Zolota, which also gives you mouth sores, okay? And head and neck patients get severe mouth sores because of the radiation and all of that stuff. There's a, a mouthwash that's brilliant. It's brilliant. It cools off that, that pain in your mouth. It cools off all of that terrible sensation that people have and that they can't eat. Okay. So what's worse than not being able to eat is have pain when you try to eat. And that, that mouthwash is just brilliant for these patients. It, and what you don't always appreciate is that if you have a side effect so severe that it lands you in the hospital, Okay, that means you have to come off your medication. How can we support you so that you can stay on your medication? Right, if you get an infection in your nails, if you get skin that peels off and you have a skin break that leads to an infection, you have to stop your medicine. So these little things matter in the long term because we want you to stay on your medicine. I love what you're saying, Dr. Nichol, because it's not only the cancer therapy, but it's the life around it, right? It's supporting you through that. Um, I, I know we've, uh, and I've talked to patients who are trying to get through or get to the next therapy. They have some sort of adverse event, something happens to them, and they're just unable to go forward, or they end up failing on their therapy, and then they have to kind of rethink things overall. So I, I, I applaud you for that. So it's hope and beauty. You, you mentioned something a little bit earlier, which is having 20 minutes or 40 minutes um, uh, when a patient's getting ready, let's say, to come to an encounter with you, um, what do you hope that the patient does kind of before coming to see you? Is there anything that makes your job easier in that 20 or 40 minutes um, if the patient kind of prepares for that? Sure. Um, so one of which is just to take a breath, right? And, and Because often what happens is it's so overwhelming, right? This This whole topic, right? This is your life that's being laid out. And the yesterday and last week of what you were doing is now totally disrupted, right? And so when the physician's talking to you, often what happens is that I'm talking, right? The caregiver's listening, but nobody's actually listening to me, right? And so the nurse comes in afterwards and the patient's like, what did the doctor say? Can you just tell me what the doctor said? Right. <laughs> so it's, I think that the idea that it's just so overwhelming you just take a breath, take a mindful moment, just understand that they're trying to, to give you information that will help you and trying to organize the information that'll help you and to, to leave your fear outside the door for a moment and then just, just listen kind of uh, quietly, just not quietly, but, but without that overlay, if, that, if that's at all possible. Bring somebody with you because there's a lot of detail and the other thing to prepare for is that I have, I have kind of a running joke with a couple of my patients. Um, and, you know, I, I get it that, that people like to plan. Okay. And they're planner people. 
and they they live and die by their planners, right? And everything's supposed to go as scheduled, right? If at 9.15, I have this, I'm, I'm planning six months in advance for my vacation, it's gonna go like this, I packed my bag already, you know. These people have the hardest time with the treatment because, you know, we're never on time, we don't do things the same way, we call the same morning and say, sorry, it's canceled. And people have a really hard time with that. And I ask the patients to give me a year, all right? Just give me a little bit of fluidity with that year of your schedule, your time, how's it supposed to work, what's gonna happen next, and do uh, a little bit of wherever you go, that's where you are. Mm -hmm. And that helps a lot because if you think that someone, that the appointment for your ultrasound is gonna be at three o'clock, it's not gonna be at three o'clock. It might be at 4.30, it might be 5.30. Mm -hmm. Just depends on. So a part of what you're bringing up, I think also as I think about it, is just the volume of patients that are out there and the number of oncologists and nurse oncologists. And I think as we've all gone through it, I, I always bring up the pandemic. I think we had some uh, pressure on our healthcare system, let's put it that way, before the pandemic and now after it, it's even higher. And I know a lot of people stopped doing routine screening and um, some other, you know, perhaps seeking treatment because they worried about being in the hospital setting and being exposed to others. Have you seen that uh, impact at El Camino Hospital? Absolutely, it happens uh, surprising. I mean, it happens a lot with uh, a lot of the general surgery patients that we see, but in, in the oncology patients, these are late stage disease. This is stuff that's been percolating around for eight, nine, 10 months. People are, and it's, and you know, again, dealing with late stage disease makes it that much more complicated, right? And the other thing I would say about some of this is that, you know, people want control over what's happening because all of a sudden you're out of control. Mm -hmm. And information is good to be an educated patient as you're, as you're going back to, you should know you know, what an, what body part we're dealing with, what, what's the function of that body part, what, um, but you don't actually have to interpret the clinical trials. You know, that's a me job. Mm -hmm. That's not a you job, right? You, you have to be able to understand what I'm saying as just sort of basic information. And you have to be able to make a decision between the choices that are, that are offered to you. But you don't have to you don't have to know and, and understand the context by which I understand things. So, you know, the clinical trial, people will come and they'll, they'll read it and they'll highlight it and they'll say, you know, I searched on Google for this thing or that thing. Right. But the problem is, is that you don't understand the context of that. So it's very hard to put it into the body of knowledge mm -hmm. that's out there. I mean, one clinical trial does not make a decision. It, sometimes you can have a seminal clinical trial, but it's not always the clinical trial that fits you. You know, one of the things that we see uh, often is, I always call it Dr. Google, um, is patients go and, go, and I mean, to be honest, it's what I would do. It's what yeah. I do with everything that I don't know anything about is I go Google it right, right, yeah. right away. And then um, particularly in a complex area like oncology, um, cancer treatment, or even just understanding cancer as a disease. I mean, you, you went to medical school and did a PhD in order to understand this. It's very complicated stuff. How should patients who kind of see all this information, they go and Google it, we're all going to do it, right? There's no question, right. we're going to go look it up. How should they treat all that knowledge and information? Um, and 
and think about how to interact with it. To your point, it, maybe it's a you job versus a uh, they job, but it's still out there. Um, yeah. Well, I think that it's important to understand what's the problem. I think that that's, and so the education that you do to understand what's the problem, like I have early stage breast cancer or I have prostate cancer, or these are the, the areas of controversy, right? And then when you go to your appointment or whatever, you have some idea of what, what people are talking about. And it doesn't, it's not me trying to explain to you what is a cancer cell relative to a normal cell, right? And there are a lot of people I think that, and myself included in areas outside of medicine, where you have a little bit of anxiety that you don't know what you're supposed to choose. And you Google it and you look for a blog or you look for somebody to tell you what's the, what are the important features of it. And I think those are important things, but the anxiety of that you're missing something and that you have to be your own advocate because there's nobody who's on your side. I think you and your physician and your whole clinical team are on your side, right? We're all together on this. We want the best outcome for patients. Oh, wonderful. So um, I guess uh, a final question, like if I had a friend who just found out that they were diagnosed um, and they're going through this journey. So now it's, I'm kind of thinking of just the situation many of us here. Um, I guess a couple of things, w what can I do to support them? How should I interact with them? What can I do to be helpful um, versus just kind of feeling sorry for them? Like how, how can we be supportive in our community? So the first thing that happens to cancer patients when they've been diagnosed with cancer is that they find out a lot of the people they knew had cancer and they didn't know about it. Right. So there's an instant overwhelming, oh, I didn't know. And people with their shared stories. Yeah. And then the other thing is, it's not to frighten people. You know, oh, my friend with breast cancer, they died. You know, you don't have to share the worst case scenario. And I think most cancer patients want you to act normal around them. They don't want you to have that very concerned look in your face. Are you okay? You know, how was your treatment this week? And they don't want the the conversation to be all around cancer. They still go to soccer games. They still go out to dinner. You know, it's not like, and I would encourage everybody to do that is to not make cancer. I mean, there are parts of your life where you're going to be all in on the cancer side of it, but the whole life cannot be around cancer. And I think people avoid you uh, when you have cancer and people don't want to talk about it because it's a difficult topic. And just the effort to be normal, the effort to just check in with somebody, I think is important just on the personal side. Some people like to give gifts, right, to, to cancer patients. And what do cancer patients need? Oh, it's going to be my next question. If I wanted to do something for someone, what 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 would be appropriate? I, uh, I'm personally kind of opposed to the whole ribbon thing and the the pink t-shirt and all that stuff because I think I'm much more practical than that. What would you give somebody? You know, a, a blanket for when they go to chemotherapy, um, a dinner, um, a little bit of help around the house, a, a little bit of taking their child to soccer or all of the the stuff that they just might not feel up to it, Right. We have at Hope and Beauty a bunch of different boxes, a bunch of, you know, here's, you know, start your chemotherapy here, or hygiene boxes, here's your this, that, because your skin may, may be more sensitive. 
Um, I have a couple of patients that, that really like our oncology. We have a, a line of, of uh, esthetician grade products called Oncology Skin Love, which have been tried in cancer patients for their specifically dry skin, for their sensitivities and all of those, all of those things. And so I think a helpful kind of kit there, there are lots of kits that are available. So they have a hat, they have a little blanket, they have a little book of sayings and a little journal. Okay, cool. <laughs> which are which are all fine. But I think that being more practical that I am, I would like to see people have things that are helpful to them on their on on what they actually might need and they might not know about. No, it's very um, that's very insightful. I'm going to check out uh, the products from Hope and Beauty. Um, and looking forward to actually recommending them to some of the folks that we know. Um, so thank you very much. I really appreciate uh, you coming on uh, the X Years Target Cancer uh, podcast. This has been a wonderful discussion. Um, uh, I'm actually going to try and come and visit you at El Camino Hospital. You guys are in the Bay Area, is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Just, just uh, the heart of Silicon Valley between Apple and Google. Got it. Well, I'm up in the Bay Area myself. I'm northern Oakland. So uh, I'm going to come and uh, look you up. and forward to it. So uh, for uh, cancer patients out there, uh, check out El Camino Hospital, check out X-Cures, uh, if, particularly if you're interested in knowing your options, um, there'll be a link that you can go to. It's X-Cures, explore your options. Uh, and uh, thank you very much, Dr. Singal. Really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. Wonderful. Thank you. Okay. Frank? I got to go find these guys to disconnect. I think they're going to cut the rest. But um, I have a question for you um, just now offline. Hey, guys, Isaac, Frank. Hang on one second. I'm going to go. Um, I'd, I'm not allowed to touch anything. Otherwise, I break it all. Um, but <laughs> my question for you is if we wanted to do um, some of the gift boxes from mm -hmm. Hope and Beauty, Sure. And actually put them out there. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things we're doing is we produce this options report for patients. So part okay. of our service is instead of having them Google and do Dr. Google, we actually consume their medical records and then do a cross match of um, both their clinical as well as biological and then try to suggest treatment options so that when they walk in to see someone like you, they're, they're actually kind of crappy, okay. yeah. educated yeah. Um, and not way off in the weeds, which... Mm -hmm easy to happen. I've made that mistake before. But um, as part of an incentive, we're trying to get feedback on the patient experience using our services as well as our reports. Sure. And um, so we're, we've been providing a financial incentive for actually answering the survey and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. but I, just as you were talking, I thought I would love to be able to give them a hope and hope and beauty box or that yeah, sort sure. of thing. Um, we can custom make whatever whatever you want. I okay. mean, if you think that, I mean, just give me a price point and we can put together. Yeah, that's what we would do. We would just kind of set it up. So I think mm -hmm. something like that. I, I actually love that idea because I think that I'm, I'm trying to make things very, um, very directed to just having a better experience, right? I think mm -hmm. your point of people not having this bad experience, there's, there's a lot to go through. I've been through it with my own family now a, a bunch of times and it's part of life. Um, so yeah. I'll reach out to you directly uh, if you don't mind. Uh, sure. And we actually have one other thing, which I didn't mention, is we have a free oncology esthetician consult. Ah, okay. Available. And we have some self-care guides and we have a bunch of blogs. And, you know, if people want to meet with me on video, I'm fine with that, too. Okay. And the thing that people people forget, and this issue of disease and illness, I think, is critically important mm -hmm. because the impact of that disease affects everybody differently. And 
just to, and I'm working on this thing where I can give to the oncologist a prescription. All right. And they prescribe wellness and hmm. this kind of cancer wellness. So I have a prescription, you know, people can pay for it with their HSA. They can pay for it, you know, other places. I mean, obviously oncology massage isn't for free, but right. those little things, um, you know, all the patients that have neuropathy, a massage, uh, indicated by their physician that it's part of your treatment, right. I think is a big deal. Yeah, and your point then is then you can pay for it out of your FSA or HSA. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. Is there a website for Hope and Beauty? Yeah, it's called Shop Hope and Beauty. Shop Hope and Beauty. And I'm in the process of making one called Hope and Beauty MD, but that's for really the consultation services. Okay. And we have this other concept, if you ever want to talk about it, called um, cancer prehab. Tell me about cancer prehab. So cancer prehab is what you do to, because it's a marathon, right? You have to run this marathon. So yeah. are you the strongest? Do you have the best nutrition? Do you have all the tools in your toolbox to make this a good thing for you? That's based on data. So for example, if you do yoga 30 minutes, three times a week, your, um, your side effect profile is less you have more resilience, you have more of everything to deal with all those side effects. If you do uh, 45 minutes of active lifestyle five times a week, your, your risk of breast cancer goes down by 25%. So it's all of those kinds of putting into place what will prepare you for this experience and get you conditioned in a way that helps you. I was actually talking to a gentleman who's a brain cancer survivor, which is mm -hmm. in itself just a miracle. A miracle. Yeah. Um, and what he had explained to me is very into fitness, wellness, nutrition. And the way he explained it to me, which worked really well for me, is if you think that we're all under a bell-shaped curve somewhere, mm -hmm. but yeah. we don't know where we are, right? Nobody can tell you, oh, you're here or you're over here. But what you do know is that you want to be in the tail. Yeah. Right? You'd like yeah. to be out in the tail. So every little thing you can do that's moving you in one direction or in the right direction that you need to go counts, right? So your point, it could be 24% becomes 23% becomes 19%, right? It, and yeah. just working your way down that curve. And I love that. Um, what do you call it? Prehab? Cancer prehab. prehab? Yeah. It sounds exactly like that, that approach. And I, I know I'm personally a big fan of exercise and wellness. Um, I think it makes an enormous difference in all parts of life. Um, Overall. I think that what I would say about Hope and Beauty different than some of these other things like, you know, boxes that people make, mm -hmm. these are curated for specific things that are your problem, mm -hmm. right? And they're curated by physicians. So it's not like one of your support group people said, oh, you should have Sour Patch Kids, right. before, you know, for whatever it is, right? It's it's not tribal knowledge that people have have had no data for. So we have this thing called polybomb. You know, what happens with a lot of the chemos is that your nails crack and they lift off and they turn black with Taxol. Right. And it's it's wildly unnerving to have right. nails that are like that. I know exactly what you're talking about. My mom was treated with Taxol. And um, actually one of the things that happened first, she underwent a mastectomy. And a lot of the symptoms you described earlier about patients being very uncomfortable with their body, mm -hmm. right? And not feeling comfortable. So. Uh, yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I just, I absolutely. It totally resonates with people, right? I mean, you just have this sensation that it's it's difficult, right? I mean, this this whole process, and it's silent. And that's the thing that people don't, I mean, people don't want to talk about it, that my eyebrows aren't there. It's not a vanity item, 
right? This is how I feel. This is who I am. This is what I look like in the mirror. Mm -hmm. And for people, it's really unnerving. And it's wonderful. I mean, you, and these are things you can address. So mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to check out uh, Hope and Beauty. And as I said, right. I want to come back to you. Excuse, we'll we'll figure out a way to um, collaborate on that. Um, I Perfect. Think great. And, great. Um, yeah. Thank you again. It's really nice to meet you. I'm gonna... yeah, there are no patients on, right? No. Because some somebody had told me that there were patients on. We're going to do individual patient interviews. Um, Frank, uh, patients are. Oh, yeah, they're going to come in around nine. Oh, so patients are going to join us. Got it. I'm. Michael. So okay. I need to stay on, right? Yes, you need to stay on. <laughs> okay. Somebody told me they were patients. There we go. Okay. Hello. Hi, Mike. Hi. My name is Mika Newton. I'm uh, the CEO for a company called Xcures. Um, uh, I've been joined by Dr. Singhal. Uh, Dr. Singhal, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Oh, yes. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm a surgical oncologist, and I practice here in California in Silicon Valley. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I was I caught the very, very end of what you guys were just talking about, so a lot of it kind of resonated with me. Wow. Oh, great. Yeah. Mike, maybe you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Uh, my name is Mike Mancini. Um, I am a stage four colon cancer survivor slash patient. Um, <clears throat> I was diagnosed at the age of 42 when I was in the best physical shape of my life, uh, you know, doing all the right things that like you guys were just talking about when it came to health and mindfulness and nutrition and all of that. Uh, no warning signs or symptoms because this disease is on the rise for people under 45. Um, and really just, uh, you know, got caught off guard with what happened. And, and in really a snap of a finger, my life got flipped upside down, very quickly lost my health and fitness, lost my job in the corporate world of over 20 years, you know, when you're out of work for so long, going through chemotherapy, um, you know, I'm still doing chemo now. I think I'm on round 74 uh, of chemo over four years of going through this. Uh, I had a temporary ostomy. Um, I'm on my second recurrence. Uh, I'm on my third line of treatment. Um, so, you know, I've, I've, and, and through that, I found my voice in advocacy, uh, raising awareness and fundraising for the cause as well. That's great. I'm I'm glad to see that that we've we've been able to treat you through all of this, and you're you're you know at home, and I I know that you've had your challenges. So, how can we help you? For sure. Yeah. So, Mike, what, were there um, <clears throat> early symptoms that kind of made you aware that you you had cancer? How how did you find out? And kind of what can you talk a little bit about the beginning of the journey? Because uh, some people really wonder what. What happens? That's, a, as we know, a stressful and scary time for people, but you've, you've kind of been through that. What can you share? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I had no warning signs. A lot of people will have blood in the stool, uh, severe abdominal cramping, um, unexplained weight loss or weight gain, fatigue. I really just, I was at work one day eating a salad at lunch and got severe cramping. Um, so bad that I had to excuse myself from the meeting and within minutes I was white as a ghost, entrenched in sweat. And I got rushed along to the hospital where they did a CAT scan and told me I was constipated. Um, you know, they kept saying, how old are you? There's no way you're 42 because I was in such good physical condition. Um, so <clears throat> they sent me home with pain meds. And five days later, I was back in the hospital again with the same excruciating pain. Uh, another CAT scan, again, being told I was constipated, sent home with pain meds. And then, um, 
I was admitted, I went and went to the hospital again, third time in, in 12 days. And that's when I was finally admitted. The very next day had an emergency colonoscopy, hit the tumor in my sigmoid colon. Um, three days after that, I was going in for emergency colon surgery. And as I was on the stretcher, get wheeled in for surgery, the surgeon informed me that the pathology had just come back and I did in fact have cancer. And so, uh, Dr. Singhal, for patients like Mike, what what happens on the other side from the doctor's perspective? So Mike's been diagnosed with cancer, he's coming in. How, how do, you, do you think about that? So my, my first response is this, what's, what's actually emergent, right? He's blocked. And what, do we, what can we do to relieve the, the discomfort and the block, right? Because that's the, that's the urgent item, right? And once you relieve the blockage, then you have a little bit of time to figure out what, what's the extent of disease, right? That's the, the critical item after, after you have met that patient. And, we're, and you are a healthy person and unexpectedly with this disease, right? If you are an unhealthy person, we have to look at what's the background of your disease? How can we, you know, how can we use the tools that we have to get this? And our, as a surgeon, we want to get out all the disease that you can see, because you can imagine that in one centimeter of tumor, there's a billion cells. Our job is to get it out with clean margins, get the lymph nodes, get the staging, figure out whether there's liver disease, figure out whether there's a lung metastasis, and then work with the medical oncologist to then do the cleanup, right? The, the going forward plan is the chemo, the radiation, is it touching any other organs? Do we have to take out any other organs and that have disease in it? And I think that that's, that's the role of the surgeon in this kind of emergent situation. Is, yeah, and, most definitely. and then the other piece of it is that at least in, in different, you know, can you do a temporary colostomy? Can you put people back together? Because one of the more disfiguring things in the world is a colostomy. And one of the more difficult things to, to understand for patients is that it's temporary. Wonderful. So Mike, you've been on this journey um, uh, for a while. You're, you're doing well. Um, it's really wonderful to have you. Any advice for patients as they kind of transition out of this? Okay, you, you just found out you have cancer. That's scary. And now you're going to go on this journey. And it's just part of life, part of what Dr. Singhal and I were talking is that, that you know, we have, and it sounds like you've been through this, many different lines of therapy, different ways of treatment. We have new medicines, new techniques. Any advice just from having experienced this to other people who are out there around <laughs> attitude, lifestyle, things that, that you think were really and are really important to you? Yeah, I mean, so obviously before this all happened, I was big into health and fitness. I am a strong believer and advocate for a strong mind, a strong body, a strong soul. Um, so, you know, practicing daily mindfulness, exercising when you can, you know, and I, you know, some days you just can't. Other days it's just walking up and down the stairs, but you know, if you're able to eventually get to a point where you can weight train. I mean, I did about 10 or 12 weeks of yoga before I even touched a weight to stretch out my muscles because it had been so long since I had been in the gym. Um, you know, and then just proper nutrition as best as you can. Sometimes you got to eat what you can just to keep your weight up. But other times, you know, really focus on, you know, good, a good, healthy, balanced diet. Um, you know, and in terms of attitude, what I would say is the way I look at this is, you're in a fight for the title of, you know, for a, for a, it's like a boxing match, right? And you're going up against the heavyweight champion of the world. 
And, you know, in a boxing match like that, you're going to win some rounds. You're going to lose some rounds. You know, cancer's going to land a low blow here and there or a shot right at the end of the round. But no matter what, each and every time that bell rings, you got to come out ready to fight with all you got. And you got to put the best people in your corner behind you that are going to support you and be there for you. And it sounds like you've engaged in advocacy and, and navigation kind of things with other patients. Um, are there any particular groups out there for colon cancer or communities that you think are, are really important? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I was an ambassador uh, for Fight Colorectal Cancer. Um, you know, they're a national nonprofit. They're very near and dear to my heart. Um, so they're a great one. Also, um, actually, my girlfriend, who's also a stage four colon cancer survivor, recently started a nonprofit called Bloom, B-L-U-E-M. Um, and mybloom.org is a great resource for anybody who's been um, diagnosed. It's even for caregivers um, as well. And, you know, what we found was that people take a lot of time, six months or a year, to find all of the resources out there after a diagnosis. And, you know, your doctors have to focus on more, more important things sometimes than telling you what's available online when they're meeting with you and their time is limited. So this is a way to get um, a lot of that information that it takes you six months to find all together in one place to help you start going on your journey, finding resources, finding events, finding other people, finding doctors, you name it. So um, I, that mybloom.org is also another great resource for colorectal cancer patients, caregivers, and survivors. That's wonderful, Mike. Sounds like you prepared and, and you're out there working with others to help patients prepare. Um, Dr. Singel, just um, for everyone who might be listening to the show who does that, what, what and how do you think about staging of colon cancer just for everyone? And then what are the kind of different treatment options? Just kind of as a basic overview. So uh, maybe some folks who might be listening who are just wondering, you know, what is colon cancer? How do I know I have it? And then what, what does that mean? There's some, just some kind of basic grounding for us. Right. So colon cancer starts, uh, you know, with a polyp. And then the polyps degenerate. And there are several kinds of polyps that can turn into malignancy. The key item for me, at least, is screening colonoscopy. It's really, you know, no, no one. Okay, I, um, I argued with my husband even to get a screening colonoscopy. Nobody wants it, all right? But it is the one tool that will decrease your, your, uh, your risk because they're going to look, they're going to look again, and they're going to take out things that are early signs of disease, and it's early detection. So early, so the cancer, uh, the colon cancer is divided into four stages. So there's one, two, three, and four. Four means that there's disease in the colon, in the regional nodes, and elsewhere. And stage one is localized to the colon. Stage two is a bigger cancer, not uh, got, got not gone to the nodes. And stage three is node positive colon cancer. Again, the bigger it is, the more spread to the nodes, the harder it is to to treat. Now, all that being said, we have a whole bunch of medication now that we never had before. So we started off with one medication that worked and that's been added to a number of other regimens. And so we flip back and forth between the regimens, between the biologics, between the immunotherapy. But what what's really important about all of this is that it's not just one way to treat something, right? There's lots of ways to treat it. And you and the the only thing that I well there's two things that colon cancer patients have a lot of trouble with is the medication that they give you, it can cause a lot of skin problems, you know, hand foot syndrome. It can make your face red, your arms red. You can't pick up any item that's hot or cold. The oxaliplatin leads to uh, nerve damage in your feet and you can't walk. So there's, there's consequences. 
and the consequences are hard to manage. Wonderful. The rashes and you know just stuff. <laughs> you could probably tell me more about this stuff than I can. I can tell you, but well, you know, it's it's a it's a great conversation to have with your doctor too because it's about at least for someone like me who's young with advanced stage cancer, it's about balancing, right? Having a good quality of life and you know going after the cancer when I'm young and healthy and I can take it for as long as I can, and then giving me those breaks when I when my body says I need it. So you know, having a good relationship and dialogue with the doctor is very important. That's wonderful, Mike. Thank you so much. I think uh, we have perhaps a, another patient uh, who's going to be joining us as well. So, Mike, um, if there was one thing, just last question, one thing that you had to say to out there for anyone who finds out they have colon cancer, just what's what's your your message? Don't give up. It, they're, like the doctor was just saying, there's so much uh, new uh, uh, treatments that have been coming out and a lot of research is happening. So keep the faith, fight, do not give up. Wonderful. Thank you, Mike. Thank All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Hi, Carrie. Can you hear us? Good morning. I can. Good morning. How are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to Extra's uh, podcast, uh, Target Cancer. This is about how health technology is helping cancer patients. Um, I'm going to let uh, Dr. Single introduce herself. My name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO of Excures. Um, and then maybe you can introduce yourself uh, and tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Yeah. I'm Dr. Single. I'm a surgical oncologist. I practice in California in Silicon Valley. I've been in practice for about 17 years. Nice to meet you. Well, um, I'll get started. I'm Carrie. I am 42 years old and I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer on May 21st of this year. Um, very unexpected. I'm a super healthy person. I don't think I've even been sick in the past 15 years. I work out a lot. I'm a Peloton uh, avid user of the Peloton, both the bike and the strength workout. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. Um, so super healthy and um young right so back in may early in may i had um it was may 3rd around um i know it was my son's 13th birthday week we went to it we live in san diego so we're at san diego padres game and walking up to the parking garage i had this weird pain in my lower right side and i thought gosh you know i just ate kind of bad at the game it's a ball game right like i had a burger and some nachos and i don't usually eat like that and just thought okay well that that was weird and i was just walking up to the parking garage, I felt it. And then I felt a little bloated for a few days after that, nothing major, crazy, unusual. Um, and then I was fine for a few weeks. And a couple weeks later, so on May 20th, I was doing my normal workout in the morning, doing uh, Jess Sims Peloton boot camp and doing some abs work. And I felt the pain again. And it's five o'clock in the morning. I work out before work. I have two young kids. Life's really busy. Um, so I felt it and I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. That pain is back. Um, went to work, had a super busy day, didn't feel it at all all day, felt great. And then uh, dinner time, making dinner, I felt it again. So probably 6.30, 7 p.m. that night. It was a Thursday night. And we kind of joked about it, actually, my family. Um, you know, I thought for a second maybe it was appendicitis because of the location. And then my kids are big fans of Friends, the TV show, and they probably shouldn't have watched it at the ages that they did because it's a little inappropriate at times. But we were laughing about that 
episode where Joey thinks um, that he has a hernia and he can't go to the hospital because he doesn't have insurance. I don't know if you guys are Friends fans. We were just making jokes about it. And we actually watched that episode that night. You know, it was funny. And I thought, oh, I'll go to, you know, I'll go to the doctor in the morning if it's still bothering me. Um, went to bed and around 1 a.m. it was still bothering me. And I thought, you know, this is the way that my brain works. I had a 10 a.m. meeting and I thought, okay, if I go to urgent care now, I know that the hospital will do CT, do all that stuff. If it's an appendicitis, which is what I was thinking at the time, um, you know, I'll be in the hospital for a couple of days. They'll get it out. No big deal. I'll cancel the meeting. If it's not anything major, I will um, come home from urgent care, take a quick nap and be on my 10 o'clock meeting. It's just sort of the way my brain works, you know, just getting my life in order. Um, so I went to the hospital around 1.30. I drove myself there. So there's an urgent care at our hospital. Um, and they, unfortunately, we were at the time, my hospital system was a victim of a ransomware attack. And they had very little technology. And they were walking tests literally back and forth because they could not use computers. I don't know how much you guys know about what happened down here with that situation. But um, so things were taking longer than expected. So even blood work for me to get the CT scan to make sure the contrast was safe was taking longer than normal. Um, so I did get the CT scan. And at this point, when they came in to give me the news, a very young looking and sad and apologetic looking doctor who likely doesn't give this news often, right? People don't typically go to urgent care or an emergency room situation and come out with a cancer diagnosis. Um, so he was very apologetic and he told me that there was a tumor in my colon and two lesions in my liver, which would indicate colon cancer. So um, obviously completely surprised. Like I said, I thought likely at that point I was thinking appendicitis. I was not at all worried. I was not at all nervous. And then I'm laying um, in an urgent care bed by myself and given this news. And it's interesting because, you know, you can overhear people's conversations in urgent care, you know, walls aren't super thick. And there was a man next to me in the room next to me complaining with similar, similar symptoms, though it was an older sounding voice. And in my head, I'm thinking this is an older, right? I'm making this up in my head. This is an older, overweight man. And who I'm picturing, although I didn't see him. Um, and if they hadn't told me when they came in, I can't believe I'm telling you this because of your age and your overall health, I would have thought they were walking into the wrong room. I would have thought, no, it's that guy next door. He's older, he's overweight, he's all of the risk factors for colon cancer that I don't have. Um, so long story short, um, at that point, they admitted me to the hospital. There was a lot of back and forth. Um, you know, do we do a colonoscopy and do surgery? At that point, they were keeping an eye on my appendix. It did seem, it seemed that my appendix was a little bothered by my tumor. My tumor is in my cecum, which is right next to the appendix. Um, and they made the decision after many, many, many doctors who were writing on paper because they had no computers for that whole weekend I was in the hospital. Um, after many conversations, they decided instead to do a liver biopsy to confirm cancer, get pathology that way and not do surgery. So I'm still at a point, um, how many months are we into this? Uh, four months in that I have not had surgery. The idea was to instead shrink my tumors first um, with with chemotherapy and uh, really aggressive chemotherapy because I'm healthy and young. So I'm doing the full, full, full Foxeria and we added Avastin after my fourth round when they were sh we were showing progress with tumor shrinking. Um, so my next steps, I'm actually finishing up. I just finished my eighth infusion on Monday. 
So then we're scanning end of next week and we'll go from there to determine probably more chemo. We may peel off that oxaliplatin that you talked about before. I've been really fortunate that I've really only had the cold sensitivity. I haven't had terrible neuropathy and I'm handling everything okay. So we may keep it. We may take it off and then um, probably another four rounds of some sort of chemo um, and then go from there. What's next? So Carrie, I have to ask you because listening to you talk about um, your disease and the drugs and the, the techniques. It sounds like I'm talking to someone who's an oncologist, just as a lay person. I'm not a doctor, right? So um, how have you learned about what you needed to learn? And one of the things that Dr. Single and I were talking about earlier in the conversation is, like, how much do patients really need to know, right? And how much do the doctors need to help them interpret it? And, like, how does that balance kind of happen? Because I just, you know, I meet people every day, and I, I work in the oncology space. I'm not an oncologist. but this is a huge subject and it's very complicated and the drugs you were talking about and the way that they're used is not something that you know you spend your time if you don't have cancer think hopefully thinking about um so can you talk a little bit about that process for you sure you know it's funny a tip for the doctor so my admitting doctor in the hospital i was only in the hospital for 36 hours i wasn't there very long that what he told me is um his first thing was do not google and do not look at statistics because anything you look at is at least five years old, right? Like if I'm looking at a survival rate on a stage four, like what it tells me is not great, but that is five years ago. He goes, the drugs that we are using today are different than we were five months ago. So you can't be looking and, and, you know, developing your own prognosis and really just making yourself crazy. So I will be honest, I depend a lot on my oncologist to give me the information that I need because I don't want to go down that rabbit hole of researching on the internet. And it's funny because my nature is to research on the, everything else in my life. I do a ton of research, but this, I really, I try to, I try to limit that because I will make myself crazy. And I will say in this process, I've had very little anxiety, which is unusual. I think of a stage four colon cancer patient or any cancer patient. Um, and it's because I've really limited my access to things you you know you can find all the good stories and all the bad stories and I'm really focusing on the positive and depending on my oncology team to tell me what's next in treatment. Um, I've been really fortunate also, uh, you know, in my career I've made um, different connections with oncologists, with board chairs of cancer centers, with uh, one of my best friends is a registered dietitian who works primarily with oncology patients, so she's been a great resource for me. So. I'm looking to professionals and not people on the internet who claim to be professionals, though I have Mike Mancini. I don't know him, but I know him through colon cancer channels and social media. So I've made some really great connections. Um, but my preference is to really listen to my doctors and not do a lot of that research on my own. Um, and, you know, I've been really lucky that I've had um, my doctor super responsive, his nurses, my nurses at chemo are really great. And again, like I said, I've been really lucky in treatment that I have um, tolerated things pretty well. I've had few, you know, annoying side effects, right? Like not being able to eat, drink cold water is really annoying. I'm very thirsty for like a really cold glass of water and, you know, not being able to put my hand in the refrigerator for a couple of days after chemo. But, you know, I'm not spending time nauseous, sick in the bathroom. And that was my, my worst fear, really. Um, so I've been doing pretty well, um, but super dependent on on my doctor's advice. And I, I don't want to know, I know just enough to be dangerous, right? Like I, when the CT scan pops up in my electronic chart, I do not look at it, right? I wait for him to talk to me about it. Um, I just, it, otherwise it lets my, my brain go crazy. So um, 
I prefer to get the info from them. Very helpful. So Dr. Single, any um, advice for a colon cancer patient, someone who's been diagnosed, they're starting to go through this. Uh, Carrie was talking a little bit about how much the treatments have changed. Can you talk a little bit about how quickly the field is evolving? Well, for, for lots of it, it's evolving very quickly. And they just dropped the age of colon cancer screening. And what I've what I've said to people is when you get colon cancer at such a young age, and I'm really sorry that all of this has happened to you, is family history and discussions of all that. I've I've recommended to my patients and to our team at the at the cancer center is that when you have a holiday and all the family gets together, it'd be really cool if everybody just went through and said what diseases everybody had. And then you would have some idea that you maybe you're not the person that that should be screened at 45, but maybe you're the one who should have had some evaluation earlier because your whole family got colon cancer or just just some uh, information I guess is is how I would how I would say to, like, for you and one of the things that I think is the hardest for young patients is you have young kids you have a whole structure in a life and for for lots of people you can't just fit cancer in between the leaves of soccer practice, this, that, the other thing. So it it makes it very hard on people because you have to disrupt your life and everybody else's thing. And yeah. you really need some extra help. I think that's a that was really hard in the beginning. I was joking that I needed a cancer assistant just to make yeah. appointments, right? So I had like palliative care and genetic testing and all of these things. And I'm really fortunate to have a really supportive work environment and a, a fairly flexible schedule. Um, and, you know, my kids are old, they're 11 and 13, so they don't physically need me in the same way, but they do have, my kids play three sports each. And so luckily my husband helps and I have friends to help. Um, but just accepting that help, I think is the hard part for someone like me, who's always done all the things. And like I said, I've been fortunate to feel well, so I haven't felt comfortable sometimes asking for help when really it's just a time thing. It's not, it's not that I'm sick laying in bed. That's never been the case for me, fortunately yet, knock on wood. I know that there are many ups and downs in this, um, but just really accepting that help when you're in this process and you have a family to also do deal with and, and a job and a puppy, yeah, a puppy. puppy right now. It's going to join you. Right. And the, and the control, it, the control of your schedule goes completely haywire. Absolutely. And I was, I was telling Mika that I have these patients that I call planner people. And so they're that would probably be me. <laughs> and the planner people, if you're, if you're very fixed on the schedule being the schedule, you you hit the wall at some point because the planner doesn't match life very well. And right. you really have to put the planner away for a few weeks or a, or a year almost until you can be, get back to a more normal schedule. So, Carrie, how do you go through that emotionally? So I'm a, 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 a Dr. Single. I'm, when you talk about planners, I totally get it because I plan everything and then I make a plan for when I'm going to plan about the plan. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, Carrie, I, I'm just... Uh, I'm wondering, how did you get through the emotional journey here of kind of going through that? What's who, where have you found support and, and kind of what's been important for you just as yourself? Well, for us, it's, I just, I really wanted to keep life as normal as possible, right? My kids are 11 and 13. They have lots of activities. I was diagnosed right before the summer. We only canceled one trip and it was because it was to a small fishing village in Mexico and I didn't feel safe being there, you know, in a medical emergency, there's three flights a week home, right? That, that doesn't sound like a good idea. Um, but so we did lots of little trips and I just wanted things to be normal for my kids for as long as they can be. Um, I think that the more they see me doing our normal things, the better that they'll feel. 
Um, I've had, you know, it's funny, um, the weekend, really the, you know, the weekend after my diagnosis, I had friends fly across the country to spend the weekend with me before I started chemo. So I had a nice girls weekend. Um, and it was really just being together and knowing that, you know, as things progress over the next several, however many years, um, that those people would be there for me. I've also been really open with my kids. And I think, and that was from the very beginning. And in the beginning, you know, as I was in the hospital, I at least wanted till we were to be physically together to tell them the cancer piece of it, but they could tell from my face on FaceTime that something was wrong. And so we did have to tell, you know, we told them pathology was still coming back, but it seemed like cancer and they were luckily able to come to the hospital. You know, I, I was lucky in a point of COVID that I was allowed to have visitors in the hospital. Um, so it's, we've really tried to keep things as normal as possible. Like I said, I keep off the internet. I've made some great, really positive connections and people like Mike that have really great stories. And so, um, you know, it's not all bad news. I also have to remind myself that it's been fairly easy for me so far. I've, I, I've felt well. I mean, I still, you know, I don't work out my three days of chemo. And other than that, I work out every day. Um, I'm working full time. I haven't taken a day off of work. Not that I don't have it. I, I want to, my employer, I can take as much time as I need, but I am better, like you said, um, as, as a planner and just living my life normally and, um, being distracted also helps me. Um, so, be, you know, if I'm sitting around thinking about cancer, I'm going to feel bad. But if I'm working and doing things productive and and doing the things our family enjoys, which is travel and food and San Diego Padres, we have season tickets. You know, we went to a lot of games this summer and that was that was our thing um, that still felt like a fun summer for us. So just trying to keep things normal and positive and um, not letting myself go down that rabbit hole of what if. That that's the scariest piece for anyone, and 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 I know there's a what if, but I'm I'm gonna say, well, what if that's not the case for me? Um, that's what has kept me kept me mostly sane, and I work a lot and read yeah, yeah. and exercise. That's a really great story. I have I have a funny story to tell you guys. You guys, um, you know, a lot of people come in and they say, well, I don't want to tell my kids, I don't want to tell my parents, and I said, well, okay, when your child has something bad happen at school or wherever. Do you know when they walk in the door? And of course you do. You know that they've not had a good day or whatever it is. So do you really think that your parents don't know something's up with you? That on the phone, your voice is different on whatever. They know already that something's wrong. So trying to keep this information from them is kind of a moot point, if you ask me. Because yeah, they already know. It was telling my mom was actually harder than my kids in a way. Um, I, you know, I could tell my kids physically, my mom's on the East coast. And so I had to tell her on the phone and I kept saying, are you there? Like, because I told her the whole story, essentially what I told you all about the hospital and all that. And are you there? Are you there? Are you there? You know? And, and she was, um, but you know, my kids, at least I could be with them physically. Um, and so that my mom was almost harder. And I have this one patient who went through her entire breast cancer journey. It didn't tell anybody, didn't tell her parents, didn't tell I her family. And you know, her hair was this this much, right? So her husband cut his hair to be that that size. And when they went back to India to meet her parents after a year or two of this, she told them, oh, it's a fashion in America that the husband and wife have their hair. Yes. That's great. <laughs> I love that story. Well, Carrie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, just a kind of last question here. Um, any uh, piece of advice from this journey? Any one thing that you'd like to tell other people who might find themselves in the same uh, the same situation? I mean, I, what has helped me beyond work and exercise and family and all of that is connecting with other people and hearing their stories. And that's been really helpful and hopeful. And I've 
I've chosen to connect with people who are hopeful and positive because I think that's my personality and that's that's where I'm going to have the best outcome here. Um, and I'm also sharing my story. You know, we talk about people who don't even tell family members they're sick. I've heard from several friends who had breast cancer in the past few years and I didn't know about it, mm -hmm. right? They, they kept it quiet. And sharing my story and the fact that I'm an otherwise very healthy adult with no genetic reason to think that I would have colon cancer. And I've had four friends, and well, one is my husband, so he's more than a friend, um, have colonoscopies in the past week. Um, and all of them under 50. My husband's 49, but all the rest of them are under 50, but had some odd symptoms. My brother is 39. And because I was diagnosed, he pushed for his doctor. So you know, if I do nothing else with this, it's getting people to get screened early. And fortunately, all of their stuff came back great. So I'm Wonderful. glad that they did it. Well, thank you, Carrie. Of Wonderful course. to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on uh, the Target Cancer Podcast. I uh, really appreciate it. Thanks. Nice to meet you well, both. Nice to meet you. Have a good nice weekend. To you. you too. Yep. I think there's a Hi, Dr. Single. There's a can you can you hear uh, the background? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, there was an exciting event next door. So I think it looks like Jessica is going to be joining us. Hi, Jessica. Can you hear us? I can hear you. Um, I am actually on my way to chemo. So um, can you hear me okay? I can hear you just fine. Uh, actually coming through uh, beautifully. I have a little background noise on my end. So I'm going to apologize. My name is Mika. I'm the CEO of a company called X-Cures. Um, and thank you for coming on our podcast called Target Cancer. Um, there's just a, an event going on next to where I am. But um, I'd like to introduce you, uh, maybe Dr. Single, you can introduce yourself. And then Jessica, maybe you could tell us a little bit about you and kind of your story. And um, we, we can chat for a little while. Awesome. Okay. So I'm Shanley Single. I'm a surgical oncologist in Silicon Valley. And it's very nice to meet you. It's nice to meet you too, Dr. Single. Um, my name is Jessica. I actually live in the Bay Area also. I live up in the East Bay of California, of San Francisco Bay Area in California. Um, so I have stage four colorectal cancer. I was diagnosed four and a half years ago at the age of 33. Um, I'm a mom of three kids uh, and um, they're 14, 12 and 10. Um, and uh, over the last four years I've had Today will be my uh, 55th cycle of treatment. Actually, my 50th round of chemo. Um, well, let's see, actually. I guess my 55th cycle is what we'll count it as. And my 46th chemo because I had some immunotherapy. I've also been a participant in um, three clinical trials. So um, that's the short version of my story. Um, also of note is that I have some unusual um, MET locations. So I have brain METs and I have kidney METs, which I understand is very unusual. I've had lung METs since the beginning, um, but just developed the kidney MET and liver METs recently and the brain METs last year. And I'm still here. Wonderful, Jessica. So just real quick, because you're talking about METs, um, Dr. Single, could you perhaps explain to listeners who might be out there kind of what, what Jessica is talking about? Um, 
Sure. So, the, so cancer can travel, and that's it's one of its hallmarks. And so it can it can travel from the primary site that it is to lymph nodes, and then from the lymph nodes, it can go through the lymphatics or the bloodstream to all other parts of the body. And certain cancers have predilections for certain places. And so, what Jessica's describing is that colon cancer generally goes to the liver and the lung. Brain mets and kidney mets are a little bit unusual, but not unheard of. And again, it's the most unusual portion of her story is that she developed colon cancer at 33, which, which is really tragic and at such an early age. Jessica, you've been on this journey for quite a while. I, I, um, so tell us a little bit about kind of living with cancer over this period of time, a little bit about your experience, just for other patients who might be thinking about, you know, I've just been diagnosed or I've been diagnosed, I'm starting treatment. Can you describe uh, maybe what it's like to be on the journey that you've been on? Yeah, absolutely. I love that you use the term living with cancer. That's the way that I like to describe my cancer. Some people like to say survivor or battle or something like that, but I really do define it as living. And I think that I'm able to live well with cancer um, as long as I'm intentional about it. And then also, um, for me personally, what really helps is to um, sort of, I use the expression, keep my eye on the horizon and know that um, there are amazing scientific advancements being made every day. So um, my disease may be aggressive or unusual or have started at a young age, but um, the disease is changing, but also science is making progress. And I fully believe that um, being part of a clinical trial, um, I'm helping advance that. Um, progress. And um, it's been a really proud moment to be able to be part of the progress forward and knowing that someday we'll have better treatments and also, you know, better diagnostics too. So other people won't be diagnosed so young um, like me. So Jessica, talk a little bit uh, perhaps about how you became aware of clinical trials and then what they meant to you. Just trying to think back to maybe, were you always aware of clinical trials and what they did? Or was this a, a new concept or new idea for you when you first started hearing about it, and then maybe a little bit about how you found and were able to participate uh, in those studies. Yeah, so I'm really um, fortunate. I was diagnosed in a community cancer center, but I happened to come across an oncologist who um, was interested in biomarkers, which in 2017 was really unusual. Biomarkers are sort of the unique genetic makeup of your cancer. And um, he made it a point to me that it's really important to understand your disease. Um, and the way that I describe that to other patients is um, to become your disease's best friend, you know, to know them inside and out so that um, you know how your disease behaves and you learn about it um, so that you can treat it in the most targeted way possible. So because I had met that doctor and he described biomarkers to me, I became aware of um, my tumor's characteristics. And then um, that led me to find out that um, the type of tumor genetics that I have, my tumor, um, the characteristics of it, that they're the new medicine they were trying to develop to get it. So um, that led me to clinical trials because that medicine is still in um, so I followed those trials for um, about a year before, um, and um, 
the timing worked out that uh, my chemo had sort of stopped working around the time that the trial started to become available. And um, I jumped at the opportunity to participate in that. Wonderful, Jessica. So you, you broke up a little bit there. I think probably you're going through a, a small uh, bad cell spot, but I think you, you were talking about the timing of clinical trials and when it was, um, uh, when you were able to eligible to participate in them. Um, Dr. Single, can you um, provide some advice for patients who are interested in clinical research or, or whose physicians are talking about them? How, how should a patient think about clinical research and trials and, and how they play a part in care? So we have actually a very few number of patients that are actually go on clinical trials. There's only about four to six percent of patients actually enter clinical trials. I think um, patients, patients, uh, it takes a long time to understand what's the clinical trial about, right? There's a whole process. You have to be the coordinator. You have to sign the papers. You have to understand what what it is. And depending on the kind of trial it is, you may get standard of care. You may get the new medicine. And so some people are kind of disappointed if they randomize to the standard of care when they were thinking that they were going to get the new medicine. So there's some expectation that that people have to have that it's it's um, it's a comparison. It's a comparison of what we have that's best known now to what we think might add to add to that. And perhaps the best of the trials is the crossover trial where if you're on one arm, you get the other arm. And I think that that's that's a helpful um, type of trial because then if you had your mind set on I'm going to get this new medicine, then the crossover trial allows for it when, you, when you're not on the arm that gets the medicine first. So it's, you know, and, and the other thing about clinical trials, I think that it's, it's, it's good for patients in some way because you really get a lot of specific and attention. Right, patients that are on clinical trials have their own nurse coordinator. They have a physician that sees them very often, and so I think that there's a lot of really close monitoring that goes along with people that are on clinical trials. Okay, so Jessica, it sounds like um, uh, you've been in trials. Uh, you've been on living with cancer for quite some time. Um, any advice in terms of uh, patients thinking about where in the community and how they can get advice and help or areas to do research uh, in addition to talking to their physician that you would recommend? Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to also say something about what um, Dr. Single said about clinical trial participation. Um, she mentioned that only four to six um, percent of patients participate um, and part of the reason for that, and actually this is important, a good reason that you asked this question, is only about 20% are offered trials at all. And then um, also to narrow it down even further to young patients like myself, only about 1% of clinical trial participants are um, young patients under the age of 50. Um, so part of what I do as a cancer patient, as I try to share my um, experience participating in clinical trials so that other patients can understand um, that they're not as, I guess just like as horrible as sometimes some people make them out to be, it's, it's actually a wonderful experience to be part of it. Like Dr. Single was saying, you have um, really 
close care and everyone um, takes care of you and is really invested in your health and your experience on the trial. So as a clinical trial participant, um, you're really well taken care of. So part of my mission as a patient is to share that with people. And I find that in patient groups and then also just on social media in general, there is a lot of um, sharing that happens that's really valuable because if people are being seen in the community cancer setting, they're often not aware of what clinical trials are available. Um, and even if you are being seen at a research institution, then um, they might only share about trials that they're running at their location. So it becomes really important to um, reach out sort of globally and find out information that's happening just outside of your specific location. Because like I said, there's amazing research happening right now. Um, but it's going to take a global effort in order for us to uh, move the marker forward on progress. It sounds like, Jessica, what you're saying is it's really important to understand all your options, to really be able to explore and understand what is out there, and then to have this close relationship with your treating physicians and your care team. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I think that sometimes people worry that getting a second opinion or going to another institution will hurt your oncologist's feelings. But, um, you know, as a cancer patient, um, your oncologist wants you to be successful and to live. And if there's a treatment option at another facility, then they're going to be happy for you to be able to find something that will support you getting um, a targeted treatment possibly or the best care that will help you live longer. Wonderful. Dr. Single, do you want to make a comment about second opinions and understanding options and just kind of care? Because I think a lot of patients have, I, I've talked to patients who've expressed what Jessica is saying, which is, I, I want to understand some other information about my disease, but I I don't want my physician to know, or, or you know, they get worried that they're somehow um, not being honest in the relationship. Um, yeah, so people... People can have second opinions, and it's recommended that you have second opinions for complicated things. So if you were going to build a house, you might get a second opinion, right, because it's complicated. And I don't have any problem with people seeking another opinion. And if the patient feels more comfortable with with a care team, you should go with the care team that is is supports you. And I mean, there are two. There are two or three of us that see a lot of the surgical patients, and sometimes they they like doctor the other doctor better than they like me. Sometimes they like me better than the other doctor, and really, it's just what suits your your feel, right? You have to have a relationship with that doctor that makes you feel comfortable, that makes you feel like you can say what's happening with you. Because I'm not psychic. I don't know what's happening with you unless you tell me. And so that relationship has to be solid. And if you if you would like somebody else's opinion or something's controversial, by all means, get that, get that advice. Thank you. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming on, on uh, Target Cancer. Um, I wish you the best for your treatment and living with cancer is a journey. So I appreciate and applaud uh, you for where you are. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I appreciate all you're doing. It's nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. So we're going to get started here in a second. I'm, I'm just going to take a, a sec for something. Okay. 
The mic, there's literally a party next door. I'm going to go join it and party myself in a minute. So, um, uh, but anyway, this can be done. Um, I think we have Tanner. It looks like he's going to be joining us. Hi, Tanner. Hello. Hi. Can't hear you. Can oh, you hear me? Shoot. I can hear you. Okay, we're not getting any audio. Wah. I can actually hear okay. him. Is it on? Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you very softly. I can hear me. I can't hear them. Um, oh, oh, is this? Yes. Ah, now can you guys hear me? Yes. Yeah. Aha, uh -huh. hooray. It's another day in the wide world of the internet. Um, <laughs> so here we go. So uh, Tanner, thank you for joining us. Uh, my name is Mika Newton. I'm the CEO of a company called Xcures. Um, welcome to Target Cancer, a podcast about how health technology is helping uh, cancer patients. Um, I've been joined by uh, Dr. Singhal. Maybe Dr. Singhal, you could just introduce yourself real quick. And then uh, maybe Tanner, after that, you could introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your journey. Hi, I'm Dr. Shamley Single. I'm a surgical oncologist in Silicon Valley. I've been here for about 16 years. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Um, my name's Tanner. I was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at 25. Um, it was about nine months ago. Um, I recently just got the all clear. They can't find any more tumors or anything. And they can't see any cancer, so that was <laughs> really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Five is really young, Tanner, to find out you have colon cancer. Um, I can't imagine what I was thinking about when I was 25. I'm giving away my age here, maybe a little bit. But um, what, what, how did that happen? And what, what did you end up feeling and thinking kind of through that process? So I had uh, just some, like, symptoms, you know, but I was like, man, do I, like, I, I saw some, like, blood in my stool, and I was having a lot of, like, lower, like, bowel and back pain, and so I, I went to the doctor. I, I, I saw the doctor, and I was going to the doctor pretty consistently for about six months before I got diagnosed, and I I remember the doctor didn't think, like, I was nervous, because I was like, oh, man, like, that's, there's not supposed to be that much blood there, and I talked to the doctor and the doctor's like, eh, like, I don't think it's anything to worry about because you're pretty young. Um, so let, let's just do this. And he, he gave me some medicine that treated my symptoms for, for months. Like I, I didn't have any, like the, there was like hardly any blood in my stool. Like all my, all my pain was gone. Uh, and then I was with my wife and we were in Arizona just for like a trip. And it, all of a sudden, it got really bad. Like I was in a lot of pain. Um, and so we had to go to the, the ER. Uh, and when we were in the ER, I was like, ah, like, I think I'm making too much of a deal about this. And, and so we were thinking about just leaving and I was kind of embarrassed. And then I, I talked to one of the nurses and I was like, do you think I should leave or should I stay? And she's like, oh, no, 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 you should, you should definitely stay. And, and I'm glad I did because as soon as I, I got checked out, they got all all my scans done and everything. And, and she didn't say it was cancer, but she was like, are you scheduled to have like a colonoscopy or anything? And I was like, yeah, yeah, next, next week. And she's like, okay. She's like, we'll just send all this stuff to them. But 
but just make sure you're you're there for that. She's like, and they should be able to see what's going on. And I was like, okay. Um, and when I got my colonoscopy, everything was fine. And then, well, I thought everything was fine. And I met my doctor, really nice guy. And then I woke up after they put me under and I was just, my wife was teasing me because she, uh, she recorded me coming out of anesthesia and I said some funny things, I guess. <laughs> um, you remember I remember when the doctor came in, he had a pretty somber look on his face. He, he sat next to us and <laughs> I knew that he was going to tell us something really bad because he like put his hand on my knee and he was like, what, what do you want me to call you? And I was like, you can just call me Tanner. <laughs> I was like, oh no, what is he going to say? And then he told me that he couldn't even really do the colonoscopy because I think like 10 centimeters up there was this huge tumor that was almost totally blocking my entire colon. And, um, yeah. And he said that he actually had scheduled, a an appointment with his, his friend who was an oncologist and that we could see him tomorrow morning, like at eight. And I, it, a lot of things happened really quick because my wife obviously was really upset I, I was kind of in shock and I, uh, I mean, I was, I was taking like 15 credits at school. I was working full time. I was really busy and, uh, <laughs> I had to, I don't know, kind of, I had to put all of that on hold and it was hard calling, especially my parents, um, and my grandparents and letting them know what was going on and. And at first, my oncologist and this doctor were like, it's not a huge deal. Like, you're really young, so we probably caught your cancer really young. Uh, and then I got more CT scans done. And within probably like a week from my colonoscopy, uh, they were like, oh, all this stuff on your liver that we thought was like fatty liver disease is actually, those are tumors. And, oh, this thing that we thought was nothing is also a tumor. And your lymph nodes everywhere are filled with cancer. <laughs> it's a really scary time, Tanner, that you were going through. It was scary. Um, luckily, I live in an area, in, I'm in Utah. We have like a lot of cancer specialty centers here. Um, I think the time that was scariest is that I got a call from someone at my cancer center and they were like a therapist. They're like an oncology therapist and they just want to make sure I was doing okay. And they also wanted to make sure that I had plans set up uh, for what would happen if I died. And I had to kind of confront maybe some things I've been avoiding. And, and I mean, cause I like at 25, like I was just about to finish my undergrad and start my master's. I, when I got diagnosed, I've been married for, for two years and, and my dad be like, hey, you could die, you know, like you could never finish college. You might never have kids uh, within a, like your wife could marry, end up like having kids and being part of someone else's family. And and uh, I mean, obviously, you would want your spouse to to move on and have a happy and fulfilling life. But it's just hard thinking that that might not be with you, you know. And so yeah, that was uh, that was just scary. 
So just um, before I, I ask you a little bit um, more about kind of how you educated yourself, Dr. Single, are there um, symptoms, you know, we're talking to some folks who've been diagnosed with colon cancer pretty early. What are the types of things that someone should be worried about or not worried about? And how do you kind of, uh, you know, what Tanner was describing was, uh, I think, uh, at least what I heard was that, you know, it felt like he was young, everything was going well, this wasn't something that was very likely, but then there were some signs and symptoms that kind of progressed without everyone running immediately to their hospital, right? What, what is it that I should be thinking about, right, at home um, outside of, you know, making sure that I go to my routine screening and get colonoscopies when I need to? Sure, well, so the, the age for colonoscopy is 45. So someone in their 20s and 30s having blood in the stool or blood dripping in the toilet and all that stuff, almost everybody will say, oh, well, you have hemorrhoids, you have fissure, you have some constipation issues here, take this laxative. But remember, if something persists, right, and blood in your stool is not normal, I think you should really advocate for either a specialist to see you or to, to really push hard for additional investigation. And the other piece of it is, is that really look and see if, if colon cancer runs in your family. Because young age colon cancers, some of them can be spontaneous, and but a lot of them are are ones that have a family history. So there's there's lots of people with I mean colon cancer is pretty prevalent. And so there's a lot of families that have, you know, every generation has someone with colon cancer. So if, if I'm thinking about family history as a physician, what is family history? Is it that I had one person who is my mom or my dad, or is it my grandparents? Is it my cousin? When we think about family history, what is that, what is that really, what does that mean? What's a family history of cancer? So, you know, so family history of cancer is usually primary relative in two generations. And if and someone with a young diagnosis. So if somebody in your family had cancer at age 35, then you really have to be mindful of that. But you know, most of the time we don't know these things. Like in in your 20s, did you know really how your aunts were sick? Did anybody really tell you? And you know, I come from an Asian culture, and the Asian culture for sure nobody tells you what's going on. So, so yeah. So it sounds like it's really important to talk and to like share this information among the family. And we talked a little bit about people not necessarily always sharing their disease history. You know, Tanner, when you found out um, you had cancer, where did you go to? Like, how did you learn about cancer? Was it something you'd ever really studied or thought about before? Is this, you know? Um, I, so bad thing. The first thing I did is I was like, okay, stage four colon cancer. I was like, let's see what the survival rates are. So my doctor was like, do not Google anything like we're putting together. We have this pamphlet and all this information. He's like, go to Google. Like, you don't know what you're going to find. But I I couldn't sleep because I was trying to figure out like. <laughs> so the other thing is when I would ask my doctors what my chances for survival and like surgeons I was meeting with, they would not tell me what they thought. They were like, we're going to do everything we can and and we'll see where we are, you know, in a couple months. And so I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to die. <laughs> but, um, I I remember like I, I looked some stuff up on uh, like Google and I saw it's like 15 percent, you know, five year survival rating for someone with, with stage four colon cancer. And I uh, 
Oh man, I I was I was really nervous about everything, but I I like talked with my wife, and my wife was like, "Hey, because we had some people in our neighborhood who actually had cancer, it was like a different type." But she showed us some like support groups on Facebook. Um, and then in this support group on Facebook, one of the wives is like, oh, hey, there's this place called Colon Town. Like, have your husband join that. And then when I was in that group, someone was like, hey, there's like a group specific to men. It's called like Man Up to Cancer, you know, and uh, and that was really, really helpful. Because even though I was I was pretty young. So, like, every time I would go and get chemo or I was going to doctor's appointments, like, everyone else looked like they were retired or getting ready to retire. Like, I, oh, man, I remember the first time I was sitting down getting chemo and this, this guy was like, what What are you here for? And I was like, oh, I'm getting chemo. He's like, no way. He's like, what kind of cancer do you have? And I told him. And he's like, oh, it's a good thing they caught it early. And I was like, oh, they didn't. He's like, oh my gosh. And so I, I mean, I had never found like everyone was just always like, oh, you're so young and you're going to die. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, it's like it's, it's gone very well for you. Um, at the beginning of the podcast, you said you've, you've responded to treatment and uh, you seem like you're, you're doing well. Yeah. It, um, so my chemo. It just worked awesomely. Uh, we did, like, I didn't reduce my medicine at all. Um, I mean, there's some nasty side effects. I, I honestly, I would say, because in a lot of the cancer groups I'm in, a lot of people have a hard time dealing with, with symptoms because chemo is hard on your body. Um, but, I mean, sometimes you have to choose, right? Like, do I want to go through these side effects or do I want to live, you know? And I don't, I don't know, like sometimes you got to make that choice. And I know a lot of, it's, it's not, um, a lot of people who are in cancer groups, like they don't like that approach, but I mean, if the choice is in between dying or neuropathy, I mean, you, you choose neuropathy or, you know, if the choice is between like, I don't know, just pain or whatever and dying. Like you, you kind of got to make that choice. And I, I had that conversation. My oncologist, I love him because he had that conversation with me and he told me, he said, listen, when you're doing these treatments and surgery, like this is going to be painful. This is going to be really hard. It's stuff that you don't want to do. And he said, but I promise you that if you do this, these things, you know, and we, we don't reduce your medicine, like, that will do the most for your fight in cancer. And I mean, there was a couple of times I did want to reduce my medicine because I, I mean, I had all sorts of reactions, bloody sores, like all kinds of nasty stuff. Um, but then we'd get CT scans and we check my CEA levels and stuff like that. And it was just plummeting. Um, and I mean, my surgeon who did my, like removed my primary tumor and removed a bunch of my guts. He told me, he said, I'm so happy you were here because the first time I saw your scans, I for sure thought you weren't going to live long enough to see surgery. Like I saw that and I, I thought you were going to die. And I was like, thank you, doctor. Right. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. Uh, 
Target Cancer. I really appreciate it, and I'm I'm glad to to see you doing well. So thank yeah. you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Of course. Have a good day, man. If you or someone you know has advanced cancer and needs to make a treatment decision soon, please click on the link in the description and sign up for the X-Cure's free options and information service.